we like to think about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we should. John chapter 1, verse 14 says that he is full of grace and truth. So there is no short supply of grace when we look to Jesus Christ. How wonderful to know that he came full of grace. We like to think about the love of Jesus Christ. John chapter 13 verse 1 says, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Those disciples often misunderstood, came to the wrong conclusions, jumped to conclusions, and yet Jesus loved them. He loved them unto the end, in spite of all of their discrepancies and their failures. And now that can encourage us, if we have a clear sight of our own weaknesses and shortcomings, to know that his love is not diminished. We like to think about the power of Jesus, which is certainly seen when he healed the sick and even raised the dead. And we can see the holy boldness of Jesus as he rebuked the proud Pharisees, spoke directly to them, pointing out their hypocrisy. And today we want to consider another aspect of the person and character of Jesus Christ and what we can certainly appreciate about him as revealed so clearly in Scripture. We want to talk about the tenderness of Jesus. And we go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. We'll begin reading with the 14th verse. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His tenderness. He was tempted all points like as we are and therefore can and is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But first of all, think about the Old Testament prophecies that declared when he came there would be a tenderness displayed in the way he dealt with with fallen sinners. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather his lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those with young. What tenderness is depicted in that passage? He's going to feed his flock. A shepherd was one that was greatly concerned about the welfare of his sheep. And as the good shepherd, he would feed his flock. He would gather the lambs in his arms. He would carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with you. So it was prophesied long before Jesus came that when he came, there would be a tenderness displayed in his life and ministry. 
And then also in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, we read beginning with the first verse. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now when Jesus was here on the earth, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and picked up the scripture to read and read this very portion that concerned his work, his ministry, as he came to this earth. Think about the specifics that are laid out. He comes to bring good tidings to the meek. The gospel is good news, good tidings. He brings that message to the meek. Now, man by nature is not prone to meekness. As a matter of fact, he's proud, self-willed, arrogant. But by the grace of God, he is humbled, he is broken, he is brought to the place of meekness and is ready to receive the good news. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. And that's talking, I believe, about those that are brokenhearted with a sense of sin. It's not talking about somebody being brokenhearted just because some plan was disrupted and what they intended to accomplish didn't work out. But the brokenhearted are those who have a deep sense of their own sin and unworthiness. He said, even to this man will I look, he that is of a broken heart and of a contrite spirit. What a wonderful word of encouragement to know that if our heart is indeed broken, The Spirit of God has moved upon us to convict us, showing us that we have violated his law. We are sinners by nature. We're absolutely deserving nothing. And therefore, he came to bind up those who are in such condition. He came for this purpose. He came also to deliver those that are in prison, that are bound. Oh, the multitudes of people in our society today that are bound by numerous addictions and sins. There's a tendency in many cases to describe the problem as being a disease. And from one standpoint, I suppose we could describe sin as being a disease. But the real problem not just a disease that you might normally encounter as far as physical weakness is concerned. It's sin. Anything that's contrary to the commands of God, anything that is against his absolute perfection and holiness is sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ came to set the captive, came to set the prisoner free, to relieve and deliver them from that terrible state. And so, long before the Savior came, this prophetic reference was there to inform about what the Savior would be like, what he would accomplish, what his ministry would entail. 
And then when Jesus came, he read, read the passage concerning that which pointed to his work. One other from the Old Testament. We'll look at the book of Zechariah, chapter 9 and the ninth verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Rejoice. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Your king comes. Well, that's good news. And I suppose it would be expected that if the king is coming, he'll be riding on a white horse. He will come with some kind of pomp and show that will indicate this man indeed is king. Well, Jesus Christ was king. He is king, king of kings and lord of lords. But when he came, he was riding upon the little beast of burden. I think it indicates just exactly what the text conveys to us. He is coming lowly. He's coming in humility. He's coming in submission to the Father's will. He said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again to the last day. That was his purpose. He came for the purpose of saving sinners. And so the prophet said, You rejoice that your king is coming. He cometh unto you having salvation. He comes to bring about deliverance. He comes lowly. He comes to minister to those who are in a low state. Now when we come to the New Testament, we certainly find many vivid declarations of this same truth as we think about the tenderness of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went about all the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. As he saw the multitude, saw a lot of different circumstances, a lot of different kinds of people, but when he saw them, he was moved with compassion. What's your response when you see people in this day and time who are so enslaved by a variety of sins, so confused by what they have been taught, so ensnared by the philosophies of men, what's your response? I can see that from one standpoint, it's easy to get just a bit upset and frustrated, particularly if you try to help somebody and they're not very cooperative. They're enslaved with a sinful habit and will say on one hand, I'm tired of it, I want to be delivered from it, but you point them the way and show them that the true deliverer is Jesus Christ and they will make all kinds of promises and don't fulfill them. It's, it, it's easy to become discouraged. I go twice a month to speak at a program for drug addicts in the Civic Building in downtown Covington, Kentucky and go once a month to the Kenton County Detention Center and talk to people who are in their drug recovery program. And I hear so many horrendous stories of how people's lives are just in utter chaos because 
of their involvement with drugs. I talked to one young man just the other day. He was new to the program, and I asked him what his conviction was as to how he was sentenced to come to this class. And he said, well, I was just uh, caught with marijuana. Charge was possession. He said, it's really ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with marijuana. I, I, I don't see any harm in it at all. It's just a waste of my time to have to come to this class. I, 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 think, it's, I think it's fine. I said, well, it's interesting that you say that. Because when I was speaking to the group in the prison recently, there were 70 men in this class, and the teacher asked them, how many of you started on drugs by first smoking marijuana? And all but two men raised their hand. It started with marijuana, and then they went on to heavier things. When you see somebody that started down that wrong road, and they really don't want to hear your message, they don't want to hear what you've got to say, it's, it's frustrating. And one of the sheriffs in a county nearby our area said he was considering adopting a new rule that uh, after they brought somebody back with Narcan three times, they would not respond any longer. Somebody asked me what I thought about that. I said, well, we're all created in the image of God. Life is valuable. We stand against abortion because we believe that life is the gift of God. It's valuable. And I believe that a person who is struggling with such an addiction, they're a human being created in the image of God. And to say, not going to make any effort to bring them back, I think is absolutely wrong. I've worked with a man who's been brought back by Narcan about 15 times. It's, it's a frustrating thing. In fact, sometimes when they're brought back, they get angry. They want to fight the, the, uh, the, the person that's, that's come to, to help them, the person that administered the uh, Narcan. Because they say, you ruined my high. They didn't, didn't want to be brought back. So it's, it's a horrible scene. But what, what's our response? Do we say, just forget about this person? I say, no, they're a human being. They're part of God's creation. And we ought to continue to try to work with them and pray for them. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was full of compassion. Not only those who struggle with addictions of this kind, but there is a general attitude among a lot of younger people today I'm my own person, I make my choices, and if you don't agree with what I'm doing, you're judging me and you have no right to do that. One young lady said to me recently in one of these programs, she said, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to change my lifestyle to correspond to what a bunch of old men wrote years ago. That's totally irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the way I want to live today. Independent. Arrogant. My sister used to work in a daycare center and they taught the children there to sing a little song it's all about me and she said I finally told the director if you don't get rid of that song I'm quitting because these children have all adopted that philosophy it's all about me and you tell them no and they don't want to hear it you tell them that conduct is not acceptable no it's all about me I'm going to do what I want to do was talking to a pastor recently, said he'd been counseling with a young man, a teenager, 
He told him, said, I tell you, I am sick and tired of people telling me what to do. My parents tell me what to do. My teachers tell me what to do. Everybody tells me what to do. So the day I'm 18, I'm going to join the Marines. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to have a rude awakening. (laughs) But you know, there's that independent spirit in all of us that we just want to do our own thing. We don't want anybody to tell us no. My granddaughter sent me a picture of her little boy the other day. He's just a year old, and he wanted to touch her computer, and she told him no. And I have never seen such a pitiful look on a little child's face. He thought his whole life had been disrupted. Just the word no can be so upsetting. But even as we become adults, we have that same rebellious spirit and it's I want to do what I want to do and I don't want anybody to challenge me, criticize me, tell me that I'm wrong. So when you see young people that have been brought up under the philosophy that's been so prevalent in recent years as though the whole need of the human race is to have greater self-esteem. And so as the educators and many parents falling into that philosophy have worked on building the self-esteem in their children, their self-esteem is out the roof. But the idea of being humble and submissive and submissive to the teaching of God's word is another story. So when you see somebody that's in a state of rebellion, going down the wrong path, repeatedly falling into the same sins over and over again, you can say... I just can't have any further compassion. Jesus had compassion when he saw the multitudes. Matthew chapter 14, the 14th verse. And when Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick, at evening the disciples said, Send them away. So here's a multitude that's followed Jesus out into a desert or wilderness place, and he'd been healing the sick, they'd had a great day. But now it's well, coming on evening time, and the disciples are alarmed. What are we going to do with this great crowd out here? They haven't have anything to eat. They're going to begin to faint. So what was their solution? Send them away. Send them away. Jesus said, give ye them to eat. What a contrast. Many times if we encounter in our own lives individually somebody that uh, becomes a problem... The easiest thing is, send them away. If somebody comes to our church and they're a person that needs special help, we have a tendency, don't want to get involved with this, let's send them away. Jesus said, feed them. Jesus blessed that the multitude was fed. 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus the women and children, were fed by the miraculous working of Jesus Christ to provide for them so that there was adequate food and there was food left over. I'm not suggesting that compromises ought to be made. There's a firm stand many times that parents must take in the home when there is one who is in rebellion. I'm not suggesting that we compromise the doctrine of the church or that we compromise the stand that we must take, that those who are a member of the church must live righteously and godly in this present evil world. But I am saying that we need to have compassion for those who are in darkness and those who are walking down the wrong path to pray for them and labor with them asking that God will turn them around. You know, we'd all like in our church to see a new family come and see that uh, 
my, these children are all well behaved and uh, this just looks like this is a wonderful solid marriage and just a wonderful example that's fine if God blesses us with that kind of people we're just thankful for it but I tell you we got to recognize that there are a lot of other people whose lives have been twisted and torn by sin often in a state of confusion often stress in the marriage often problems with children and we've got a message for them Jesus Christ came having compassion for those who were in such a plight then we think about the time that uh, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda there's a man who'd had an infirmity for 38 years had been all this long time in this state hoping, hoping for relief, but none ever came. But Jesus comes and says in John chapter 5 and the 8th verse, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Jesus had compassion on him. Of course, Jesus did for him that which no one else could have done. But when we understand that the gospel we preach is not a message that originated with men. It's a message that came down from heaven. It's the good news. It's that which God uses in enlightening minds and blessing. And we know it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to bring life to those who are dead in trespasses and in sin. It said that the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. And I've known from the very beginning of my ministry 70 years ago that it would require the power of the Holy Spirit for somebody to receive the message. But I've become keenly aware of it since I've been working in some of these drug programs. Now, when I go to the jail, those men, and when I go to the women's section as well, they are, they are disciplined. They, they know that they're in this drug program voluntarily, and if they don't live up to the rules, they'll be removed from it. And so they're sincere, wanting to recover. So even if they don't agree with me, they are attentive, they're respectful. But in this other program, they're only there two hours a day, and they don't have the opportunity to uh, discipline them as they do in the prison. So there are days I'll see somebody lay their head down on their desk. I'll see somebody sit there with their arms folded and look at me. You can just tell by the facial expression, I don't believe a word you're saying. I don't, I don't like being here, and I don't like the fact you're here. And it just brings home to me, Lord, if this message does any good, it's going to have to be by the power of your Holy Spirit to change hearts and attitudes. And I'd gone there one day and was thinking on the way, Lord, is, is, is there any good going to come out of this? Maybe it's just a waste of time. I ought to be doing something else. But when I finished the message that morning, a young man came up to me just in tears. And he said, Preacher, I want to thank you. God spoke to my heart today. That's the very message I need, and I thank God for it. And then I said, Well, let's, let's go out and have lunch together. Let me learn more about your experience. He said, I was brought up in a home that was in terrible shape by... Father was an alcoholic. My mother was a drug addict. They didn't want us. So they sent us to the grandparents. The grandparents were very, very poor. They didn't want us either. Said so they lived in a house that was about to fall in on them. We just barely were getting by. And so there were three of us boys. And one of my brothers said, we're going to have to figure out some way to make some money on our own. So they got involved in selling drugs. 
The brother went out one night to meet three young men with whom he was acquainted. So he was not fearful. He thought this was going to be a regular drug transaction. Turned out that the men that he was meeting were part of a satanic group. And the requirement to remain a member was they had to kill somebody. So they killed this young man and cut his body up in pieces and scattered the parts all over the area. He said, that's the kind of life I've had to face. So he said, when you were talking to me this morning about the grace of God, that touched a place in my heart. He said, that's, that's what I need. And when you think about the entangled lives that people live today as a result of sin, how sad to see their plight. And so we know that it requires the life-giving voice of Jesus Christ to bring about a difference and to make one open and receptive to the message. But we have the good news that when they see it, oh, what a difference it makes. And then in John chapter 8, verse 4, men brought a woman to Jesus and said, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Strange, isn't it, that these... Men all come in a very self-righteous manner. Of course, they're trying to entrap Jesus as to how he's going to respond to the matter. And he writes in the sand and whatever he wrote, it caused the men to disappear because he said, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And he asked the woman, then, where are your accusers? And she said, they've gone. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, Jesus was not condoning her sin. He was not excusing her sin. He was saving her from her sin. But it certainly pointed out the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees. No doubt some of those men had some things in their past as they brought this woman to Jesus that they didn't want to be revealed. They left. But Jesus says to this woman, Go thy way and sin no more. Sometimes when people's lives have long been entangled by a variety of sins. They can reach the place that they feel they are hopeless. There's no escape from this. There's no way out. And reach the place that they wonder, will God even forgive me? Would would, would God have mercy on somebody that's messed up as badly as I have? Somebody said to me the other day, said, I've messed up and I've messed up big time. I said, well, Jesus is able to save big time sinners. There's no sinner so great, no one that has fallen to such depths, but what he can reach them and save them by his grace. So here was a fulfillment of that prophetic reference that it said, he will not break a bruised reed. And that was the case when Jesus spoke to this woman. No tenderness towards sin but tenderness toward sinners. And then Matthew chapter 19 to the 13th verse. Then were brought to him, that is to Jesus, of course, little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Picture that scene. Here are these people excited to bring their children to Jesus. And the disciples, no doubt meaning well, they thought Jesus is very busy. He's healing the sick. There's a lot of people coming to talk to him. We don't want him to be distracted by these children. So he says, the disciples say to the parents, send them away. We don't want Jesus to be disturbed. But Jesus rebuked the disciples. And he said, suffer the little children. To come unto me. 
Jesus is one of a tender heart. How good to know little children can come to Jesus. Now, I've heard preachers argue about what the age ought to be for a child to be able to make a public confession and be baptized. And I've known of some churches that set the age limit and said you've got to be 18 years old to be able to become a member of the church. I don't think there's any age that we can set. I think it depends entirely on the individual. I've spoken to little children very, very young that had a remarkable understanding of the gospel, that truly knew that they were sinners and that they were looking to Jesus Christ as the one that had saved their soul. Little children can come to Jesus. Think of the blessing that the parents found believing that this man Jesus was no ordinary man no doubt many of them believed that he was exactly what he claimed to be the son of God when they brought their children to him and to be able to walk away and say Jesus bless my little child what about you as a parent do you think of bringing the message of Jesus to your children there are people who are very enthusiastic and zealous about educating their children and giving them the very best education possible and yet are terribly negligent when it comes to teaching them the things of God. Parents have the responsibility of bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not only when you present the message to them and take time teaching them and answering their questions, but key to it all is that you live a life in front of them so that they see by your example that you know the Jesus you're talking about. The Southern Baptist Convention took a survey a few years ago trying to determine why so many young people who had been brought up in the church were leaving when they finished their college education, left home, they also left the church. Over and over again, the answer had something along this line well my parents took me to church and they would go to church and they would look very righteous but I saw them at home and I was made to think there's not much to their religion and I just decided I'd had enough of it oh how important it is that parents prove not just by what they say not just by what they verbally teach, but by the way they live, that they know Jesus Christ. And they convey that message to them both verbally and by example. Jesus was tender as he spoke to little children. Let them come unto me. And then we find when Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha after their brother had died, And Jesus went with them to the tomb. And the shortest verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was sympathetic toward them and their sorrow. He understood the pain that they felt. They loved their brother dearly. And Jesus loved that family that had many pleasant visits with them. And of course, Jesus then performed the greatest of miracles when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the grave and was alive. And then I think about the crucifixion. Jesus is on the cross. The crown of thorns is on his head. 
He's been beaten with men's fists until his face is swollen and he hardly appears as a man. He's dying. But a thief next to him says, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. There wasn't anything about the physical appearance of Jesus that would have made that man think he's a king or he could help him. Obviously, it had to be the effectual work of the Holy Spirit of God to make this man know this man, Jesus, is king. He will remember me. Recognize he had a kingdom. When you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And what was the answer of Jesus? This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Oh, how wonderful is his tenderness. And then our text speaks of our infirmities. We have a great high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He began to think about some of your infirmities. Think about pride, which is the basis really of all sin. And isn't it strange? A lot of times a person says, well, that's not one of my problems. And uh, they've just revealed the fact that they've, they've got a bigger problem than they're aware of. Or, I used to be proud and now I'm humble. Now you're proud of your humility. So pride is a, is a problem. Greediness, selfishness. Bitterness describes bitterness as a plant that springs up and defiles many. Oh, how difficult it is to get rid of bitterness. person says, I just, I just I can't overcome it. Preacher, you just don't know how deeply I've been hurt. I just, I just can't, can't, can't get over it. I was counseling with a lady one time who had been to professional counselors and so it soon became evident to me that she was bitter and angry and I said, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. You say that you are a child of God and in order to have fellowship with him, you've got, got to deal with this sin issue. She became irate. She said, let me tell you, I went to professional counseling for 30 years and my counselor told me all you got left is your anger, don't give it up. Well, that's the philosophy that some of the worldlings have. But God's word tells us that bitterness and anger is to be put away. I was counseling with a man who had an anger problem. His wife would talk about how his anger was displayed at home. And he'd try to tone that down and say it wasn't that way. But then he'd get angry right in my office. I thought, if he gets that angry in front of me, what's he do at home? And so I would confront him about it. And every time he'd say, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. I said, that's not what Ephesians chapter 4 says. Ephesians chapter 4 says, put it away. You don't just keep working on it and trying to defend it and going back to it. If you're an angry person, put it away because anger is a sin. Well, some people are more inclined to be angry than others. Some are complacent and laid back and it take a lot to get them angry. Other people, I mean, it doesn't take but a little bit. They just blow up over nothing. Well, whatever degree you may struggle with the sin of anger, you need to bring that to the throne of grace, asking for mercy and praying for forgiveness. But the point is that it says he understands, not that he condones or excuses our sin, but he understands us. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. In Matthew chapter 4, when Satan was tempting Jesus, after Jesus had fasted for 40 days, so physically he was weak, and Satan 
tempts him, saying, cast yourself down from the temple. All your difficulties will be over. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus was tempted. Now, I know it's a little difficult for us to grasp because we know that he didn't have a sinful nature like we do. And we say, how, how could he understand that he was a human being and the temptation was real? And Jesus dealt with it by quoting scripture. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So the idea that Satan proposed was, you do something that's wrong, cast yourself down from the temple tempting God, and your situation of being hungry and all of your other problems will be resolved. How often does Satan tempt you in that very manner? You do this and your problem will be solved. You go this direction and all this difficulty will be over. But the thing that he is presenting to you and the temptation that he is offering is to do something that's wrong, to settle something that's already a problem. You don't get out of one problem by creating another one. You don't solve one sin by sinning in another direction. But Jesus understands our weaknesses. And in his tenderness, he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. How can I come boldly? I'm so unworthy. I'm such a sinner. Well, you don't come in your own name. You can't come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know I've had some rough times, but I've been doing pretty well here recently. So I I think I'm entitled to a blessing. And I'm going to ask you, no, no. You can't ever get to the place that you can come as though you deserve anything. You have to say with the patriarch Jacob, I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies. But you come boldly because you come in Jesus' name. I'm coming to plead his merit. You come boldly and what do you find? Find mercy. Obtain mercy. If you know you're a sinner, you know that's what you need. You didn't just need mercy at the time of your conversion. You need mercy every day. Because every day you miss the mark. You can't ever say, I I finally got there, 100%. Love the Lord God with all my mind, heart, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. Flunk on both points. You need mercy. But this is what he invites us to come, that we may obtain mercy. And then there's a time that you have a sorrowful spirit, the death of a loved one, a child that goes astray, The loss of a friend, trouble with plans not working out. You may say in those days, my heart aches. I'm in such deep sorrow. I don't know how it can go on. But remember this. He remembers our frame that we are dust. In his tenderness... He says you can come to him for help. He is the great high priest that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He already knows our infirmities. He knows them far better than we do. But when we come to recognize them and come to him and admit, Lord, I need thy help. I'm grieving deeply, but I know thy grace is sufficient. I think years ago, there was an old sister down in the mountains of North Carolina had called me and asked me if I would come and preach at their church. I said, well, sister, I'd be glad to, but you better have to talk to your pastor and see what he thinks. So the pastor called me in a little bit and said, yeah, we want you to come. This old sister's been talking about it for so long. And So I got there. It was a weekend meeting. I got there on Thursday night, ready to start service on Friday morning, and a brother came up and met me and he said, well, you know, the old sister that so much wanted you to come here, her son dropped dead suddenly just a couple of days ago, and 
his funeral. We'll have church in the morning, but his funeral's going to be here at the church tomorrow afternoon. And so I hope you'll pray the Lord to comfort her. And so I saw her at the funeral and tried to offer some word of comfort. I thought, bless her heart, she had wanted so much to be at this meeting, and now that death has come, and I don't suppose she'll get to attend. She was at the funeral in the afternoon, and when church met that night, she was filling her place, and she was there every service through the rest of that meeting. She said, what better place could I be than in the house of God? My heart is deeply grieved at the loss of my son. You know what's strange to me? I've heard people say after the death of a relative, well, I just can't go back to church. You know, I, I, I used to sit by them in church, and the fact they're not going to be there, I just can't go to church. Well, you sat by them at home, and you sat by them a lot of places, but you don't quit living, so why would you say, I can't go back to church? That's the place you ought to be. place you ought to be. Oh, the ideas that people come up with when they miss the fact that there is comfort when we turn to the one who can provide it, Jesus Christ. And then there's a time of spiritual depression. The psalmist said, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. And he asked, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be merciful no more? Now, not everybody has explored the deepest parts of the valley and gone into the darkest times of night. And if you've never been there, that's all right. I'm not asking you to hunt out the deepest part of the valley. But for those of you that have been there and those of you that will get there, even though you haven't been there yet, I want to tell you that when you're sinking in the mire, when you're at the point, you just say, I feel cold spiritually. I, I, I'm not getting much comfort out of reading the Bible. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just in a dreadful state of mind. I'm just, I'm just going down for the count. Remember the tenderness of Jesus that he understands our plight. And when the psalmist said, I'm sinking in deep mire, he called on the Lord and asked the Lord to lift him up. Jeremiah the prophet says in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, my hope is perished from the Lord. He hit rock bottom. I, I, I've tried to pray and he shut out my prayer. He set me as a mark for the arrow. Affliction has come my way. I, I, I'm in a terrible frame of mind. But... Just as he went down for the count, he said, But this I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new every morning. So when we get to those dark times and we feel hopeless and dejected, we have to remember that our hope is in him. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 says, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted me by the coming of Titus. Sometimes the Lord comforts us by sending a brother or sister in Christ to bring a word of cheer. But even if that's not the case, we need to remember that it's God that comforts those that are cast down. He can comfort us in a variety of ways by bringing someone with the appropriate word, by bringing you under the sound of a message that will bring comfort, by blessing you to find something in Scripture. Maybe you never had even seen it before you've read over it but now you see it and it's like it jumps off the page at you and it's a message of comfort that God gives you and then there are times of just plain old weakness I believe God can give you physical strength in time of weakness I've, I've seen times when I'd be looking ahead at the weekend I had hours I needed to spend in study and preparation for preaching. I had counseling I needed to do. I had a variety of things that were upon me. And I just said, Lord, I don't know that I've even got the physical strength to get through it. 
I can't, I can't do all this. But I know you've promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And I'm coming asking for your grace. And I remember the words of the apostle when the Lord, we had gone to the Lord and asked that God would remove the thorn in the flesh. And three times he prayed, but the Lord's answer was this. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. So whether it's physical weakness or just being worn out mentally and spiritually and down for whatever cause, my grace is sufficient. No problem so great, but what his grace cannot overcome it. And when you experience that, it gives you greater faith to come back the next time and say, Lord, I've I've been down in this dark place before. I've traveled this valley. And let me tell you, when you travel those dark places, you're not exploring new territory. You're not the first one ever to be down in the bottom. No, you read the writings of the psalmist over and over again when they went through those struggles. And interestingly enough, they all recovered without modern psychiatry. They found their hope in God, their strength from above, and he delivered them. And that's where we must go for our help. You have a problem. It's just too big. You say, I don't know how I'm going to resolve this. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And sometimes your own efforts only complicated if you haven't first taken it to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. That's a unique way of expressing it, is it not? You'd think, well, it would be enough to say unto him that is able to do what we ask. But it says he is abundantly able to do abundantly above. And not just abundantly above, but exceeding abundantly above. So too many times when we come to the Lord in prayer, we're praying a little bitty prayer. Because we're not expecting much to happen. We ought to pray big prayers. Not selfish prayers, but praying, expecting God to do great and mighty things that we know not. So his promise is, whatever your problem is, God's bigger than your problem. And he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. You get to the place sometime where you say, well, just no, nobody understands. Maybe you've had a friend and you tried to describe your current state and your struggle and your problem to them and you could see that was a waste of time. They did not have any understanding at all. So I'm going to crawl back in my little shell and I'm not going to talk to anybody because nobody understands me anyway. But you know, it's wonderful if you have a friend that understands, but if you don't, Jesus understands. He understands you better than you understand you. He knows all about you. He knows your past, present, and future. He knows your thoughts, your attitudes, your motives. He knows it all. So you can go to him and just pour it all out. Lord, here's this problem. Here's this burden. I can't handle it. I'm at my wit's end. I'm looking to thee for help. And he says he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And then, of course, the burden of guilt. Guilt is a terrible thing. How it drags people down. When I opened it up for questions and answers at the prison the other day, one man raised his hand and said, 
Preacher, it's just driving me out of my mind. I know I'm guilty. I'm guilty. But he said, it seems like the big problem is I just can't forgive myself. What do you recommend? I said, quit trying to forgive yourself because that's not biblical. That came from human thinking. That's from human philosophy. How are you going to ever forgive yourself? You think one day, well, I'd like to forgive myself today. Well, I can't quite do it. Oh, I don't believe I can forgive. Maybe I can do it tomorrow, so I'll work on it tomorrow. Tomorrow, this, this is going to be the big day. I'm going to forgive myself. That's not the question, friend. When you're guilty, you're guilty before God, and he's the one that can forgive you. When David sinned, he said, Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and none this evil in thy sight. He went to the one that could forgive him, and that's where you've got to go. You come to him acknowledging, I'm guilty. I can't put it away, but I come pleading for mercy. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, sinners are made clean. Now let's think just a little bit about the lessons that are taught and what we have considered here. First of all, in this very passage that we read at Hebrews chapter 4, it says, let us hold fast our profession. These to whom this letter was sent, many of whom were discouraged because of the persecutions they were encountering and the Jewish friends that they still had were encouraging them to come back to Judaism. But he says, let's hold fast our profession. We can hold fast our profession when we consider that we have a great high priest, one who is ready to plead our case, one who understands our infirmities, one to whom we can freely go at any time, have the opportunity to come to the throne of grace. I thought some years ago when we were putting an addition on our church building and we'd run into some complications that required city approval and we'd gone through every city department each one would say you got to go to the next one we get there we can't help you got to go to the next one so nobody could help so I finally decided I'm going to go see the mayor well it took a little doings to get an appointment with the mayor but we finally got in to see him and I said here's our problem he said I wish I could help you but I can't (laughs) my my try to turn for help here in this world and many times it's a disappointment but think about this you don't even need an appointment to get to talk to Jesus he's not going to put you off and when you get there he's not going to say I can't help you he says come boldly to the throne of grace come to him and he will hear you he is the great high priest he's passed into the heavens he's on the right hand of God enthroned in God in God's presence there the throne of grace to make intercession for us so we can come boldly to the throne of grace obtaining mercy and finding grace to help in time of need now you may read that and say well yes on any special day of emergency I need that help I don't know about you but I need it every day and I start out today I think about that wonderful promise of God I need help help to get through the day help to do the things I need to do help to try to keep my thoughts like they ought to be and my attitude and to be able to serve to the glory of God so you can find grace to help in time of need and considering all of the things that are here said about the tenderness of Jesus the Old Testament prophecies that declared this is the way the Messiah is coming. Here's how his life and ministry will unfold. Coming to the New Testament and seeing the enactment of all of that which had previously been prophesied. Seeing the wonderful things in the epistles that refer to the kindness and tenderness of Jesus. What should be our response? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says that he is our example and we should follow in his steps. Follow in his steps. 
Again, I emphasize the fact I'm not talking about compromising with sin, with evil, with error. Jesus certainly did not. But Jesus was compassionate and had a tender heart toward those that were in great need. 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Now that follows the dissertation concerning how a believing wife ought to conduct herself when she has an unbelieving husband. But it concludes with this thought, that you be of one mind, having compassion one of another. I believe that if many marriages where there is a struggle going on at present would take that one verse to heart, it would make a big difference if there was just compassion. Trying to understand maybe what the struggles of the other person might be, what their background and history has been, having compassion one of another. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Somebody will say, Well, preacher, I just can't forgive. I've been dealt with so unfairly. You just don't understand the magnitude of this whole thing. I said, Well, let me tell you something. Whatever has been done to you is minor in comparison to what your sin has been against God. So if God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, you should be able to forgive others. For Christians, forgiving ought to be a delightful experience because since you have been forgiven, you delight to forgive others. Be kind, tenderhearted, tenderhearted. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Now I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So he speaks of Christ. He knew him well. He had heard his name called on the Damascus Road. He had had intimate fellowship with him, and he describes him as one who is meek and gentle. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. A gospel minister has to be bold, he has to be courageous, he has to speak the truth. But when he's laboring with God's people, he must come gentle, even as a nursing mother would cherish her little child. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and meekness. Now these are qualities that are not admired in the ungodly world in which we live. You start talking about meekness and somebody thinks you're weak. You don't have any spine. You don't stand up for anything. But this is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Generous and meekness. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye that are spiritual go to such a one. How do you go? You go in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. How many today are desperately in need of tenderness? I understand that for the heart to be in the right position, Martin Luther said you can bring the message to the ear, but it takes the Spirit of God to put it in the heart. We certainly recognize that to be so. But we have a responsibility to deliver the message, whether it's parents teaching their children at home, brothers and sisters in the church ministering, speaking to others about them. 
or looking for opportunities in your daily walk of life to bring the message. To understand there must be a bold declaration of truth, but there needs to be a tenderness of spirit as we pray for those about us and seek to minister to them. The hymn writer said, There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. No friend like him is so high and holy. No, not one. No, not one. And yet no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Is it not a comfort to know that Jesus invites us to come, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help, that he who is King of kings and Lord of lords is tender. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you've never come to faith in Christ, but you today are convicted. You see, I am a sinner. I deserve nothing. If I were going to stand in the presence of God today and be judged on the basis of my conduct, I know I would be justly condemned. But you see that there's hope in the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary's cross. And because of his death and the shedding of his blood and his ultimate resurrection, there's hope for sinners. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. May the Lord bless you to believe on him and all of us to rejoice in the truth of the tenderness of Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you also, Lord, for this time we have together to gather to hear your word. I thank you, Lord, for sending Elder Bradley over to be with us in service, Lord. And I thank you for what you brought forward, especially about your son Jesus, how he never, he wouldn't break a bruise for you. Lord, we think of the gentleness of, of the one by whom all things were made, one with God, and he came and walked like us, and he's so tender and so gentle. Think of a, a great, a mighty football star or something like that, holding a baby in a gentle way, and it wouldn't even come close to how, how kind and how considerate you always are for us. And Lord, when we think of that in the face of your justice, we just should make us cry. So we thank you, Lord, for, for sending you and sending your son to be for us and with us. We ask, Lord, that this comfort continue to be that comfort for us and that encourage us, and that by your power, Lord, we might also be like Christ, that we might be in Christ, and we might be able to be that same kind of comforting to those who are weaker than us or who are going through hard times. We ask for the blessed word to go in and that we might, as clean beasts, continue to chew it and consider it over the course of this coming week, and that we might all be edified thereby. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.